Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass, about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. They kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. Well, may God add his blessing to that reading of his word. This morning we come to the Transfiguration. It is, of course, a most amazing event, and we could spend a whole lot of time just marveling at the spectacle of it, just wondering at this amazing glimpse of glory that we that is shown. But I think if we did that, I think if we sort of set up camp to look at these miracles, we would be doing we'd be making the same mistake that Peter was making. We're not setting up a tent to see a performance like we're at some circus. That's not what this was about. We need to do what Calvin does in his commentary, which is to make this statement. We must first inquire for what purpose Christ clothed himself with heavenly glory for this short time. He, he wasn't clothed with glory normally. This was the state of humiliation. Again, to set the bigger picture, Christ laid aside his glory. We know that from Philippians chapter 2. He, he laid that aside, and he, instead he was found in the appearance of a, a servant. He, he humbled himself. And he was in the state of humiliation in this world. And yet, for this brief moment in time, that was reversed. And the reality, what he always was, but he was, as it were, concealing, hiding from us, 
was demonstrated, and the question is why. And to do that, to understand why the transfiguration, why he showed himself in glory, we have to be able to follow the development that is going on through the chapter. And things are moving rapidly. They're moving at a fast pace in this chapter. And you see, first of all, Peter's profession in verse 20. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. Well, that's very true. Absolutely. You've done it, Peter. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be the Christ? That's the problem. Jesus explains that in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. And we know from the other Gospels that Peter didn't receive that. He didn't listen to Jesus on that. He didn't like that idea at all. He said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And Jesus has to rebuke him in Matthew 16. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. His false idea of who Jesus was and what he came to do, his false Christology, it it turned him from being the rock upon which Christ was going to build his church to Satan in the course of a few verses. And that could happen to us too, so we need to be careful that we rightly understand who Jesus was and what he came to do. Now, what is all this, the fact that Jesus was going to suffer many things and be rejected by the authorities and be killed, what does that mean for the disciples? Because that's clearly going on in their minds as well. We know that. What does it mean? They were thinking like Peter was. They were expecting him to take over the world or at the very least to take over Jerusalem. And they were just jockeying for position to have the the good positions in this new government that was coming, Jesus' government. They wanted to be sitting on his right hand and on his left and all the other things. Well, they're going to share in Jesus' situation, all right, but not quite in the way that they were hoping. And Jesus makes that clear as well in verse 23. He says to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's, that's the share they're going to have in this world. They're going to also share in that cross. And that's explained in verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, you, Peter, you, the other disciples, you don't seem to like these things, you seem to be ashamed of them. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's. And notice, when he comes in his glory, because that is coming, that's eventually going to happen, that is just not now. One gets the impression, I at least get the impression as we're reading these things that that Jesus is not quite getting through to them. He says these words, but there's blank incomprehension and there's, in fact, rejection to some extent. Not complete, but some element of which they were just not able or willing to receive these things. And then Jesus perhaps needs to show them. How is he going to show them? How is he going to show them? That brings us to verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. You guys have this idea of the kingdom of God. And even when I tell you what it's really like, even when I tell you what I'm really here to do, you still don't get it. But I'm going to show you. Some of you, not all of them, but a few, a representative few, know that in the Old Testament, the Every word was established in the the mouth of two or three witnesses, and he took three witnesses with him, and including Peter, the one who wasn't getting it, and he was going to show them the kingdom. 
Well, that's what we are to see in this. We are to see what Jesus wants us to, sh- to show us in the transfiguration. That's the title. What, what Jesus shows us in the transfiguration. And I'm sure there are many more things that could be said, but I have these four things that I think he wants to show us. Jesus' mission, his kingdom, his glory, and our instructions. His mission, his kingdom, his glory, and the instructions that he has for us, which are rather simple ones. So let's begin with Jesus' kingdom. That's the first thing I think that we see in this transfiguration. Again, in verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, we're, about, we're going to see some things, right? We're going to see some things, but we're also not going to see some other things. I think it's useful for what we see and what we don't see. He is going to say, these, there are some here that are about to see the kingdom of God. And then we know, therefore, that we can, our right understanding of what that kingdom of God is in defined by what we see and what we don't see in this transfiguration. Now, if there were, in fact, some disciples who did not taste death until they actually saw the kingdom of God, what does it tell us? What does it tell us when we don't see Jesus exercising earthly authority? When he hasn't become the king of the world? In earthly terms. It tells us exactly the sort of things that it was originally intended to tell the disciples. They didn't get it. They kept misunderstanding the nature of his kingdom. What does Jesus' kingdom look like? Well, I'll tell you again. What we don't see is exercising this worldly authority. We don't see this political and cultural influence over the world. And domination politically and all the rest of it. That's not part of it. In fact, if his kingdom did look like that, you know whose idea of the kingdom that would be? Satan's. Because that is precisely what he was offered in the temptations. you remember that? Back in Luke chapter 4, it's not that long ago. Then the devil, taking him up a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me and I give it to him of our wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. That's Satan's idea. And he would have fallen into that. You know, had he, had he said, yes, that's the kind of kingdom I want, of course, we would all have lost all hope. He would have failed in his mission. And Peter is essentially offering him the same deal. That's why he reacts so strongly as he does in Matthew. Get behind me, Satan, because he's playing the part of Satan. He's saying, no, Jesus, your idea here of being rejected and of being killed and of dying on the cross and rising again the third day, that is a bad idea. What you should do is instead be exercising earthly authority. You should be taking over the kingdoms of the world. And by the way, you can put me next to you and, and, and maybe my friends as well here. That's our idea. And he says, you are t- playing the play part of Satan in saying that. You are not mindful of the things of God but of man. And unfortunately, I think there are many who are playing that part in our own day. Their idea of what the kingdom of God looks has everything to do with political authority and, and culture and money and all the rest of it. And they're mindful of the things of man rather than the things of God. We don't see those things that Satan offered. We don't see the things that Peter expected. If that was the, the, that was the kingdom, if that was really the kingdom of God, then, then Jesus' pro- prophecy was false because they never saw those things. What do we see? We see, yeah, we see an outward display of glory, yes, but it's not an earthly glory. 
It's his face being radiant with the glory that was his from eternity, which was veiled in a state of his humility. And that veil is pulled away, and we see his holiness. That's the the essence of his glory, the glory of infinite holiness. And there is talk that's going on, but it's not plans for politics or for cultural influence. He is conversing with his holy servants about his glorious work, the most glorious work that has ever entered into the mind of God, and that is the redemption of his people through sacrifice, through his death on the cross. That is the subject of this conversation. And he is enjoying the fellowship of the Father and of the Spirit. We see the Father, of course, speaking in the cloud. The cloud picturing as it does in the Old Testament, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he's enjoying the fellowship of his own people, his bride. They're around him. He has representatives in Moses and Elijah. And yes, also the disciples. And that's what Christ's kingdom looks like. Yes, one day it's going to also include all the kingdoms of the world. But the essence of it, the essence of it is spiritual. That's what Jesus' kingdom looks like. And that's what he says, you know, in John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants were fight, so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And I think he showed Peter and James and John what that kingdom looked like. Well, secondly, I think he also told us a little bit more about his mission. As we read in verse 30, Behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. And by the way, you get the picture of this escalating wonders. First, Jesus' face shining. And then two men. And who are these men? It's Moses and Elijah. And it keeps getting bigger from there, of course. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that's the thing, the decease that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He was about to die. He already said that. And it was no accident. It was so far from that. It was no uh, crazy idea that entered into Jesus' head, but something that had been planned out from all eternity, something that had been spoken about throughout all of Scripture. And here Moses and Elijah are speaking of that. This is no, and mainly to the point here, it was no sideshow. It wasn't an accident, but neither was it a sideshow to something else. Jesus' accomplishment was to be summed up in his decease. That's what he's about to accomplish. John one twenty nine. The next day John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His mission, Jesus' identity, his mission, it could be summed up in those words of John the Baptist. He is a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's a sacrificial Lamb. And that, again, is so extremely important because our idea of what the church should be doing is wrapped up entirely about what we think Jesus' mission was. What do we think he came to do? People get that wrong all the time. The liberal churches say he was here to, to teach and to be an example. And that is the gospel that they preach. And if you believe that, you're going to hell. In our day, we have sort of Peter's teaching that, that his, his, his mission must have had something to do with with transforming the culture or whatnot. And I'm sure that there are implications for Jesus, for the culture. But that's not his mission. And the, the saving gospel is wrapped up entirely in what Jesus came to do. And he came to be the Lamb of God. And the, his accomplishments on this earth are to be summarized in the fact that he died for us, for his people. 
That's what he was about to accomplish. The accomplishment was centered about Jesus dying, but the implications of that death, of course, are far greater than that. That word translated deceased is actually the word exodus, the exodus which he was about to accomplish. And, and that word is that helps us to understand. It gives us a little bit of, of insight because the exodus, the, the exodus had already happened. You know, the exodus of bringing the people of God out of Egypt, that was the single greatest act in the history of redemption until that time. Moses had accomplished the great feat of rescuing the people of Israel out of this land of slavery and death and bringing them into the promised land. All that pointing beyond itself as, Im- as immensely beautiful and, and wonderful as all those things that pointed beyond itself. Moses didn't lose anyone. All of them were brought out. None of them stayed behind. And the enemy was destroyed completely in the most amazing and utter, complete way that, that could be. And as great as Moses was, he was just a type for Christ. And as great as the Exodus was, it was merely setting the scene for the Exodus that Christ was about to accomplish. And he would bring us out of that land of sin and slavery and death by his, by his sacrificial atonement. And he would bring us into the promised land. And this... Death, this exodus, it was to be accomplished. It was not a defeat. It was an achievement. That really, I think, helps us to think about the death of Christians. Every time one of God's people perseveres, holds fast to their profession of faith, walks by faith in the darkest night as they're dying, it is a victory, brothers and sisters. It is something that they have accomplished by the help of God. You know, 2 Timothy 4, 6 says this, The time of my departure is at hand. And what does, what does he say? He, Paul knows he's about to die. And what does he say about it? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. His victory, you see, is that he has kept the faith. Well, again, this is what Jesus is accomplishing, his death. And this, by the way, is the subject of these heavenly inhabitants, these glorious people that are showing us a picture of the kingdom of God. This is what it's like. The participants, Moses and Elijah, they're talking about these things. And the question is, why Moses and Elijah? A lot of speculation that we could offer on this. But I think very clearly, it's they're representing the whole of Scripture, when, when Jewish people talk about the Old Testament, they talk about the law and the prophets. I have a copy of the Old Testament in, in Hebrew, and that's just what it says. The Torah, the, the, the first five books, the law, and the prophets, and also the writings. And, and all this, the, the word of God is summarized. Elijah being the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and Moses being, of course, the great lawgiver. And what are they talking about? They're talking about Christ. You know, John 1.45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's what they were always writing about. That's what they were always discussing. It is no strange thing that we now find them talking about Jesus and the work that he was going to do now on the Mount of Glory. Because that's what they did throughout all this Old Testament. We have found the one. That Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Nazareth. 
And Jesus would go on to say, and specifically about his work, Jesus would go on to say in Luke 24, 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And it was talking about his death. It was talking about his resurrection. That's why they're there talking about it. That's what they spoke about in their own day. That's what they spoke about on that day in the mountain. And that's what... They will be speaking about for eternity. Calvin says, our, life, our Lord intended once more to ratify by their voice what they had taught during their life in order to inform us that the same salvation through the sacrifice of Christ is held out to us in common with the Holy Fathers. To ratify by their voice one more time. This is what they were talking about. The decease that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So what do we see in this transfiguration? What is Jesus showing us? He's showing us his kingdom. He's, he's showing us his mission. And he's showing us a little bit of his glory. I think that's fairly straightforward. We won't spend too much time on it. But again, this is a reversal, a temporary reversal of the state of humiliation. Philippians 2, 6, speaking of Christ who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, that's, that's what Jesus was in this state of humiliation. He didn't come in all of his glorious accoutrements in his glory. We would not, he would not have been able to interact with us. You remember how it was with Moses that he had to... He had to, um, with Moses, he had to veil his face because the glory that shone on his face was, was too much for people. But Jesus' glory was veiled. He took on the form of a servant in his humiliation. But just for a moment, he pulled that back and said, you know, and I, I think there's a point to it as well. Because Jesus had just spoken to him, to these disciples so clearly. He'd said, you got it, Peter. That's who I am. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to die. And Peter said, no way, Lord. You're wrong about that. I don't accept that. And you know, maybe Peter was getting caught up in that state of humiliation. He was forgetting who he was talking to. God, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pull back the curtain for a moment and remind Peter who he's speaking with. It's interesting, isn't it? That at the, be- the beginning, he's just running his mouth and running his mouth, but by the end, he's quiet. He's got nothing to say. As he's reminded, he's reminded of who he's talking to. And of course, in all these things, it's a foretaste of heavenly glory for them. Of course, it's a, a foretaste of heavenly glory. That's what it was. And soon enough, those who are in Christ will see such things for themselves. They will see Christ with unveiled face beholding his glorious appearance. And he will, we will indeed be conversing with the other saints in such wonderful things. But you know, and even in this, even as we see that it is a foretaste of that heavenly glory, I think we get a reminder of Jesus' humanity. And I would say this, I think that he needed to be strengthened by these two men. Here he was, his own disciples, rebuking him for telling them what's going to happen. It's not very encouraging. Jesus and his humanity needed to be encouraged. You know that. 
You know that after he was tempted in the desert for those 40 days, tempted by Satan, who came? The angels came and they ministered to him. This is Matthew 4.11. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. And we know that once again that would happen in the garden of Gethsemane as he is sweating, as it were, great drops of blood as he is praying. And he needs to be encouraged. He needs to be strengthened. And we know later on in Luke, that an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And so fast on the heels of his public declaration, as things are being set in motion that would bring him to Calvary, bring him to this, bring him to Gethsemane, he needed to be strengthened. And I think that's what Moses and Elijah were doing as they were speaking with him of the decease he was about to accomplish. And finally, as we consider what we see in this wonderful appearance and glory, we have our instructions. Jesus shows us about his kingdom, his mission, his glory, but then we also have instructions about us. And I think it's, it's very important for us to get that straight. Because as the Father then speaks in verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. We get our instructions. Now, of course, we know that that voice from heaven, it reminds us of something else. After the baptism, Jesus is, again, in a state of humiliation. There's nothing special about him. He has to, uh, John the Baptist has to remind the people who it is because they're not able to guess. There he is. That's the one I was talking about. It's the, it, that's, that's the lamb that's going to take away the, the sins of the world because, you know, there isn't much outward glory on him. And back then there was this voice from heaven. And the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's much that could be said about those things. But in this, this one we have words that are added to it. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Hear him. Because we've got to be very clear, don't we? about our our situation and all this. Peter, for whatever reason, was just full of good ideas. You know, he was creative. Sometimes people want to be artists rather than than ministers. Sometimes they want to get creative and they come up with all sorts of things. That's what Peter was doing. He was creative when he said, no, 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 I've got a better idea. I don't know where you got this crazy idea of dying, but I've got a much better idea than that. And there, even on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he's been displayed in his glory, yet he has another good idea. He says, let us make three tents. It is good for us to be here. Let us set up these tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's got all these great ideas. But you know what? I think the Father from heaven, from this cloud, has a better idea for Peter. He says, this is my beloved son. He's the eternal word of God. He has infinite wisdom. He knows exactly what he's going to do as he governs the affairs of the entire universe, Peter. And most certainly, these particulars of the work of redemption he knows from all eternity. Not one detail of them is going to be altered. He knows what he's doing for his church. And here's a suggestion I have for you, Peter. Listen to him. Stop talking for a moment and listen to the eternal word of God, my beloved son. I think that these are our instructions. Hear him. You know, 
As I say, he wasn't listening. He wasn't in the mood to listen to Christ. He had his own ideas. And he needed to be rebuked. He needed to be rebuked from heaven for such things. But I think beyond that, there are more general instructions for them and for us. Because those disciples were not always going to be on that mountaintop with that kind of experience. And we are not always going to be on any mountaintop. None of us, in fact, are ever going to be in that precise kind of experience. We're never going to see Christ in his glory in this world until he returned. But Peter would eventually get it. And here's what's so beautiful about the word of God. Here's what's so beautiful about hope for us. Because some of us are just as as blockheaded, aren't we? And sometimes we wonder whether they're ever going to get it. Sometimes we wonder whether we're ever going to get it. Whether we're ever going to listen and obey the, the word of God. Receive it in faith and obey it. But Peter did eventually get it. And he has some advice for us. And and here's some advice we can really listen to because I think he has been there. He has had his own ideas. He has not been willing to listen to the word of God. But now he has some good advice for us. As he writes towards the end of his life in 2 Peter 1.15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And here is one of the few places in the whole New Testament that uses that very same word, my exodus. For we did not, and here's what his advice is. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed as a light which shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Because the point of this, as with all the miracles, is that it confirms the prophetic word. It settles forever the canon of scripture. It gives us the reality that this is the word of God and we are to follow it. And he says, I saw that. That word of God is confirmed. And I'm now I'm giving you some advice you would do well to heed it as a light that shines in a dark place. This whole world, despite this beautiful sun that we see, the whole world is in darkness. And as long as you're listening to the world, you're not ever going to receive the truth. That's, what, that's Jesus' point earlier on in the chapter. He says, who do they say that I am? And they have this idea and they have that idea and it's always wrong. And if you are going to the world or you're going to yourself to come up with who Christ is, It's darkness, it's faults, it's lies. You'll never be saved that way. And it's only when we heed the light that shines in a dark place, the word of God, this prophetic word that was confirmed on that day, that we can hear the truth and be saved. And the application for these things is is very simple, it's very straightforward. That we need to hear him in the word of God. Can we, can we not now listen, even now, to the emphatic word from heaven? I, I do wonder at the patience that God displayed to Peter on that day. You have Peter rebuking the eternal Son of God and he's still there? Men have, have, been, have been immediately zapped for much less than that. And he was still there. And he had patience and forbearance to say to him, Just listen to him. Just listen to him. And sometimes I feel the same way. 
Sometimes I would say to, to those particular who are, who are not yet Christians, we've spoken and maybe you've even ex- expressed a desire to become a Christian and, and, I, and you come with all of these ideas of who Christ is and what salvation might mean and how you can get it. And I say, just listen. It has nothing to do with your own righteousness, not a single thing. No, you can't bring that. You can't work it for it. You can't earn it. Jesus has done it all. And all that you need to do is put your faith in him. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but can I be sure? Do I know that these things really happened? Did he really die? Did he really rise? And yes, it's been confirmed. That's exactly what happened. That's what Peter is saying. The prophetic word has been confirmed. He saw it himself. You can trust it. Just believe it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And likewise, for all those of us who are Christians, we always come up with our reasons for not obeying the word of God, don't we? We always have these reasons. Yes, generally speaking, I know that the word is true and I should probably obey it, but in this particular case, in this particular sin, in this particular temptation, I actually have good reasons to go my own way, to get a little creative, And brothers and sisters, I say it's a lie. Satan is having his way with us when he does that. We are playing the part of Satan when we do that. And the word of God for us is listen to Jesus Christ. And his word to you is if you love me, keep my commands. Do what I say. He knows what is right. And his forbearance with us is amazing. But we would do well to heed this word that is given to us, to obey it. Secondly, I would say that there is great application for us in prayer. Because you know that it was a devotion to prayer, in that devotion to prayer, that this was manifested. The Lord Jesus Christ manifested himself. And this is the fruit of prayer that we see. I'm amazed again that Jesus needed to pray. It's, it's something that actually requires some time for us to understand why that's the case. We've done that on other occasions. But all I would say is that he certainly did. In his humanity, he needed to pray. And if that's the case for him, how much more so for us? Now, interestingly, these disciples who were the cream, I guess, they were the inner circle, such as they were, uh, I don't know what that says about us, but that was the inner circle. They weren't in shape spiritually or physically to, to carry on in this prayer. And it wasn't because they had any different human nature. Jesus had the very same one. But Jesus had prepared himself. Jesus was in spiritual shape to be able to have that kind of prayer. And we see them fall heavy with sleep. We see them asleep, just like we see them in Gethsemane. They're not able to do it. And it's a reminder to us that prayer is not easy. It is something that needs to be practiced. It is something that requires discipline. We must subdue our flesh or we'll never do it. But we know that the Lord is pleased to make use of it. We know that when we humble ourselves to pray, the Father is very often to exalt us. And that's what we see in Christ, isn't it? As he humbles himself, and there's nothing more humbling in the world than than bowing before the Lord in prayer, and yet he is lifted up in his glory and exalted. And, and so it is, I think, with us. 
if Christ himself needs to go through that work, the process of prayer to get what is required to carry out this mission, do we really think that we're exempt? Do we really think that we can do it on our own? And I just say this again to drive home the point, because so often we do think that, or at least we act like we do. But as we think about these new monthly prayer meetings, and we, of course we do not at all displace what happens every week, we're reminded of how much that God has blessed these prayer meetings. I'm reminded also of our own private prayer clauses, which are not always as they should be. The Lord would have us to pray to him, and he makes far greater use of it than what we put into it. And finally, I would say that there's a ministry, there's a place in this church for a ministry of encouragement. Now, if it's true what I said, if Jesus really needed to be encouraged to be strengthened by the angels and also here by by Moses and Elijah, these heavenly inhabitants coming to strengthen him, brothers and sisters, how much more so do we need encouragement? Yes, of course, we can speak of necessary rebuke as well. And on some other occasions, we'll see that being taught in the word of God. It's very necessary. But the exhortation for today is about encouragement. Because there are many among us who are weak. We know what we should do. We are, we are clear of the mandate that we have in our vocations. But these things are very hard. And the people around us are not encouraging us. They're discouraging us. They're saying that there might be another way. Maybe we can just compromise. It's hard to keep going. And we need to be like Moses and Elijah. We need to strengthen one another's hands. I need you to strengthen my hand. I'm sometimes very clear in what needs to be done. But I'm not very strong to do it. And that's why the Bible tells us that we should encourage one another in what is good. Let us have a ministry of encouragement in this church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come from this mountaintop... We pray, Lord, that we would learn all that you would have us to learn from it. And if we would not learn everything that could be learned, let us learn the main things. And Heavenly Father, we know that Peter was very wrong in his ideas of Christ's mission, of his kingdom, even of his glory. He had worldly and earthly ideas of these things and ended up playing the part of Satan. Lord, we pray that we would learn these lessons well, that we would understand who Christ was. And as he came to give his life an atoning sacrifice for sin, he was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And Lord, our only hope of salvation is putting our faith in him. Now indeed, Lord, that we would listen to that word of gospel. And Lord, how we pray that we would learn other lessons of the need for prayer and of the need for encouragement. Lord, how we pray that your Holy Spirit would work mightily upon us, that we also might truly be transformed by this view spiritually, through the word of God, of Christ as he truly is. We pray this in his name. Amen.